This is Dr. Lauren C. Scott, uh, President Lauren C. Scott and Associates, Inc., and also Professor Emeritus of Economics at LSU. Appreciate you coming on the program here today. And before we exit the interview, I just want to ask you about the forecast you did for Louisiana. We had it on our program a few weeks ago, and I didn't know it, but I saw your name as one of the people on the study for the uh, economic outlook for Louisiana. So uh, before we get into some of the OPEC stuff, go ahead and just give us a quick update. Uh, you know, the elevator pitch, if you will, of that uh, economic outlook for the uh, Louisiana uh, state and the energy industry down there, especially Lake, Lake Charles. Uh, well, we put out the Louisiana economic outlook and have been doing that for almost 40 years now. I think this is our 39th year. And um, it's about a 110-page document that covers all the metropolitan areas in the state and we also have, you know, special sections on the price of oil, the price of natural gas, uh, which just goes to show you how how difficult it is to forecast the price of oil. I keep telling my students in my executive MBA class at LSU that where I teach forecasting techniques that the second most difficult thing in the economy to forecast are oil prices. And that's because about two-thirds of oil reserves in the world are under the lands of countries where the government's running the oil company, and you never know what they're going to do. Matter of fact, uh, what happened yesterday is a classic case of that, right? Suddenly, the, uh, the, the Saudis decide to do something, and it dramatically drops the price of oil. Uh, back, at, back when we released our forecast, back in September of last year, we were thinking that the price of oil this year would average 59. Uh, it may still do that, actually, but we'll have to see. But it's hard to believe that sitting here in uh, the very first part of March and seeing the price down near 30. So what happened with this OPEC? You know, I, I, you, you see the headlines and then from there, everybody reacts and they give their own opinion. And it's hard to even figure out what actually happened. Yeah, well, I think what happened here uh, goes back to a meeting that happened last week. Uh, in which um, the OPEC countries met with Russia, what we call the OPEC Plus group. And, you know, you, if you recall, what happened was this group got together back in 2016 and said, you know, we, we've had low oil prices long enough. Let's get together, and the OPEC and Russia and a couple others will get together and take about 1.2 million barrels of oil off the market. We'll get the price back up again. And sure enough, that, that worked. They got the price back up again. Well, what happened last week was OPEC was looking at oil prices softening because of the coronavirus uh, reducing the demand for oil out there. So they said what we need to do is we need to get the price back up. So what we need to do is to take even more oil off the market. And so uh, Russia joined with us here, and let's get more oil off the market and keep the price up. And Russia said, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to participate. And so the Saudis, I think, said, well, we're going to show you something here. So they took action to pump more oil on the market and discount their oil, drive the price way the heck down. And I think what they're doing is they're saying to the Russians, we're not kidding. We want you to get to the table and we want to take oil off the market and get the price up. And if you don't do this, then look what's happening to the price of oil. Now, the Russians, from their standpoint, are saying, we want to kill the shale industry in the United States. And the only way to do that is got to stop this thing about trying to prop up the price of oil. Just let it drop. Well, the problem now that 
Russia has is that they have two prevailing headwinds going against them on their gambit. Uh, one of the prevailing headwinds is the Saudis have now driven the price way down. And that is dealing a body blow to the Russian uh, revenues because uh, economists would say the demand for oil is inelastic. And what that means is when the price goes down, your revenues go down quickly. And that's what's so. So, first of all, Russia's taking this body blow in terms of the amount of money they're going to be bringing in from their oil revenues. The second prevailing wind that Russia has is they want to they want lower oil prices to kill the shale industry. But we've already demonstrated that that didn't work back in 2014, 2015. They drove the price down. The Saudis did this by themselves back in 2014, 2015. And what happened is the smart, clever capitalists in the, oil, in the shale industry just figured out ways to live with oil prices and still cause uh, the production to go up. So, the, the, you know, hopefully the Russians are going to, number one, feel this body blow to their revenues. And number two, be schooled on how this didn't work in 2014, 2015, ain't going to work now. And hopefully they'll come back to the table with OPEC and say, okay, Let's uh, King's X. We're sorry. We will participate in production cuts and get the price back up again. And if that happens, hopefully that'll happen quickly. And if it happens quickly, then we're going to see uh, we're going to see the price jump right back up again quickly. As a matter of fact, above where it was last week, I think. So that's kind of the scenario we got. We're just kind of waiting to see how long it's going to take the Russians to cave in here and go back to the table and talk to OPEC and say, all right, uh, we're, we're, we're sorry, we, this didn't work. Let's go ahead and take more oil off the market and get that price up. So we'll call that a right hook for right now. Uh, the, yeah. the, the left hook being the coronavirus, which to me right now uh, probably is more of the Chinese economy more than anything when, it, when we talk about the coronavirus. I don't know. I mean, I know that there's talk about some – some impact in the United States, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But I do know that when you have uh, 1.3 billion people that are used to going to work in a certain manner and used to doing things in a certain manner, and all of a sudden their habits and routines are upset and 96% of our lives are fueled by petroleum, yeah, I could see where that's going to be a little bit of an impact. So I, I'm seeing headlines about this coronavirus, but like I said, I'm more linking that to the Chinese economy. So just kind of a two-part question. The Chinese economy and the coronavirus, how's that playing into the oil prices right now? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that before the even before the meeting last week, you know, part of the reason why the Saudis even had the meeting, uh, uh, the OPEC Plus last week, was because of the impact of the coronavirus on the demand for oil and hence the price of oil. The price of oil had fallen from in the you know mid to high 50s down to the mid to high 40s and even lower in some cases because of reduction in demand. I mean, people are, you know, the airline industry is just getting creamed right now. They're not flying nearly as many, nearly as many planes. People are being encouraged to work to 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 work from home, which is cutting down on the demand for fuel. So, you know, we we were already feeling an impact on prices. Uh, because of the coronavirus and that's what the coronavirus hopefully being at its peak uh, who knows uh, I, don't, I don't who knows if it's at its peak um, but uh, uh, we already knew there was going to be an impact on 
prices because people are just not traveling as much. The question is, how long is this going to go on? I, I saw a McKinsey study that had three different scenarios. One was the, the the happy case, in which case it would it would it would start to tail off here pretty quickly, and maybe we'll be through with this by the say the mid part of June. Uh, then the the base case, the more likely case, is this would last through about July or into early August. And then the worst case is it would last all year long, that we'll just be battling this stuff for quite a while. So uh, we're just, we're, if, you, if you deal in this industry, you're always dealing with uncertainty. And the coronavirus has just added a significant measure of uncertainty. We don't know how long this sucker is going to last or how bad it's going to be. But right now, what it's doing is driving down the demand for oil and causing the price to be down. It certainly seems the demand is still there, though. I mean, you know, it seems, you know, last I checked, uh, you know, Mexico was looking at trying to get some, you know, some of our liquid natural gas or whatever. I know that's why Lake Charles is ramped up. Uh, it's a big reason anyways. And Russia has been trying to get a pipeline built. I keep reading that in the news. And, it's you know, every time I see a headline, I think of you because last week I was – seeing speculation that we could be getting hundred dollar oil by this summer once again and now we're facing the reality of possibly ten dollar oil is what i saw this morning <laughs> so yeah. I, in I, fact I, if you if you got the if you got a copy of the louisiana economic outlook and you read our section on oil price forecast we have a point forecast of 59 dollars a barrel for the next two years but that's around a range of 30 to 90 dollars a barrel and now you say, well, uh, most of your listeners will say, well, hey, you know, hell, I could do that. And, and, but, but why do you have such a wide range, Lauren? And the reason you have such a wide range, you learn is that forecasting techniques, is that the more uncertain, um, uh, more difficult something is to forecast, the wider the range has to be around your forecast. And well, I, I can create a scenario for you right now where the price can go down 30. We're, we're, we're seeing a threat of that right now. I can also create a scenario for you where the price goes to 90. You know, this coronavirus thing turns out to be uh, not a very big deal, and it goes away relatively quickly. OPEC and Russia come to the table and say, we're going to take even more oil off the market. You can see prices go up well into the 60s. And then if there was some other crisis like, I don't know, something happened in Iran where they, you know, they, there was no production at all, or there was a war in the Middle East, you could very easily see the price going to 90 just just because of what economists would call exogenous shocks just something that comes out of nowhere that you weren't expecting and that's the problem with this this dead gum industry and that's that's always going to be a problem for folks in north dakota texas louisiana and oklahoma and even the people over in the pennsylvania area because you know this there's just there this 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 product is so susceptible to these exogenous shocks that are very difficult, if not impossible, to predict. Might if I ask you about some flaring things real quick? Okay. Uh, so this is a, you know, flaring has been an issue that's been going on now for, I don't know, well, since the shale revolution started, really. And Permian and, and the Bakken, of course, gets, gets a lot of headlines for this. And... Yeah, I, for a few years now, I've been kind of, you know, pontificating. You know, I don't like to stick my, 
my my uh, toe too much into the politics, but every now and then I do. And one of them was just what would a world look like if we shifted, say, half of the renewable subsidies, solar and wind, which have gotten them for 40 years, over to natural gas to solve this flaring problem? Just for that reason that I believe that if a lot of these guys got got some help, they could probably actually solve this flaring issue in five years, you know, but the energy companies are kind of strapped for R&D. And if the subsidies, so anyway, you know, I usually went one of two responses. One way is that people were just against subsidies. Absolutely not. And the other one is, of course, they would stick up for renewables. And I thought, well, I think people are missing my point here. And then the other day, now I'm seeing for an advocation for a flaring tax. So I thought, well, all right, well, it's going to come one way or another, folks. So either we can shift this subsidies over now, or they could just end up sending the energy companies a bill now on the flaring tax. So uh, just what, what, what do you make of that? Either without getting political, just the whole idea of figuring out some way to, to get some dollars to some of these guys, as you call them, smart, clever capitalists, because I do think with a little bit of a, a surge of dollars, that flaring issue could be solved in five years. Yeah, of course, your, your, key, your key problem here is just the lack of pipeline capacity right now. Uh, when you drill, many of the general public don't know this, everybody in North Dakota does, I'm sure, is that when you drill for oil, you don't just get oil, you get associated natural gas. And the tricky thing about it is that the older the well gets, uh, the more associated natural gas. It produces less oil, but a lot more natural gas. And the problem for um, uh, for you guys, it started out with you couldn't get it out. You had to ship your oil out by train. And then you were getting, actually, we were taking it out by truck, for goodness sake, and train. And then finally, they got the pipelines in there and the problem has been that getting enough natural gas pipelines, uh, and that's true not only for you guys, but it's also for the Permian. But the Permian is getting pretty close to solving that issue uh, because these low natural gas prices, um, there is a lot of demand for natural gas down here on the coast uh, because uh, what has happened is low natural gas prices have just created an enormous boom in the chemical industry, uh, along the, especially along the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast. Uh, we, for example, um, I've been looking at the Louisiana economy for 40 years. In a really good year in the past, if we had $5 billion in industrial announcements, we'd have thought that was great. We have $188 billion just in Louisiana. And in Texas, it's even bigger. And what is happening is chemical firms use natural gas to make all kinds of stuff. I mean, the plastics, uh, uh, the, the thing that you pack, your, uh, you, ship, you ship the little peanuts you do ship, you ship stuff in, all kinds of consumer goods are made out of natural gas. Well, the, the price of natural gas here is really low. It's way below $2 uh, per million BTU now. In, Rus- in, in, in Europe and in Asia, where they have a lot of chemical firms, the price of natural gas is around $12 per million BTU. And so they're saying to themselves, what the heck are we doing staying here? Let's go to the place where the price of natural gas is low. And so they're coming here like crazy, uh, building chemical firms along the, uh, t- especially the Texas and Louisiana, 
uh, uh, coast. And so they need that natural gas. And so there's been pipeline after pipeline being built to bring it now. You've seen a number of them open up in the last uh, two years to bring the natural gas out of Permian. There's not quite enough yet, so there's still some flaring. But that's that's the whole that's that's the key to the to the uh, to the uh, flaring issue is to get that dead gum natural get a, get the pipelines to get the natural gas out of your area down here to the coast because there's plenty of demand for it down here and there's plenty of demand for moving it on into Mexico by the way uh, because Mexico is in the process of converting a lot of their power plants from coal or fuel oil to cleaner burning natural gas. And so you've seen a lot of pipelines being built from the Texas border down into Mexico to bring that natural gas in. So the, the key to the the key to the flaring issue is to to make sure that nobody gets in the way of building those pipelines uh, to get the natural gas out. Uh, and, and pipelines pipelines are an issue in your part of the country. They're not an issue in my part of the country. We have enough miles of pipelines under the state of Louisiana to circle the globe four times. So we're, we're used to pipelines down here. We know they're not something to be afraid of. Uh, we know that the technology on them is, is way advanced now, so there's not really any problem with them. Uh, but, but in your part of the world where they're, they're kind of new, everybody thinks it's the, you know, it's the end of the world. Uh, but, uh, Getting get getting them getting those pipelines up there to take that natural gas out, I think, is a real key to, to solving your your flaring issue. I, I do want to ask you about the environmental movement in just a second because that's a big part of the uncertainty out there. To the tune to where they're actually requiring companies to get certified now to get certain levels of investment and banking. Uh, ESG ESMP, I think, are the acronyms, but. Um, I guess I never really thought of the foreign companies on the petrochemical side of things because just the other day we were talking about the number of foreign companies that were doing drilling in the Bakken and in the Permian to where, you know, some people are discovering this for the first time and we're thinking, no, this has been going on for a while. The globalization marketplace has been uh, slowly happening since probably nafta even probably even before then but what what it was you know whatever we're, we're, it's i never thought of the petrochemical side of that too because that's important to point out too because the business might not be able to happen over in europe over in some countries so those countries are coming here to just build facilities and, and, and get things done <laughs> just, yeah and what they're doing is they're, the reason they're coming to the the louisiana coast and the texas coast is because uh Deep draft ships can come into the Houston Ship Channel. They can come into Corpus Christi. They can come all the way up the Mississippi River to to where I am, to Baton Rouge, in deep draft ships. And you need deep deep draft ship. You try to say that real fast. Deep draft ships to to take these bulk chemicals and then move them from here uh, over to Europe or Asia, where they're then converted into some, say some plastic products. Uh, and so that's, you know, you, you may have um, uh, uh, a lot of natural gas there in North Dakota. You're probably not going to get a bunch of chemical plants because you, you don't have a way of getting the bulk chemicals very quickly into the world market from there, whereas we do have it down here. That's why the importance of the pipelines coming down here is so important to get your natural gas out and maybe even getting the price up where you can actually make some money off of it. 
So what do you make of the eco movement? I mean, you've probably were around to remember maybe not the first Earth Day, but maybe at least hearing about it as a kid and to where we're at today, like I said, to where the reality is, you know, just last week we had William Prentice, the CEO of Meridian Energy Group on, who's been fighting legal battles for over three years up in the Bakken, and now he's down in the Permian with the new refinery, and they had to go get certified to be more palatable to the investors out there. To Just, you know, your thoughts on this eco-movement. Well, I mean, I'm, I am... Uh, this is going to turn off a lot of your listeners when I say this, but... Um, uh, let's let's talk about the very first Earth Day. Go look. At, uh, this this is an interesting little fun thing for you to do. go look up the uh, Google what the headline said on the first Earth Day thirty what about thirty three years ago now. Headlines on the first Earth Day thirty three years ago was man made global cooling is going to destroy this Earth if we don't do something about it. Go look it up. I mean that's exactly what it said. Man made cooling, and then of course. We had the, the, the heat wave that hit in the 90s. We had that hockey stick, and they switched to, well, no, wait, 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 wait. Now it's man-made uh, warming is going to destroy the earth. And then the hockey stick reached a peak and went sideways, and they said, well, how the hell it's not warm anymore. Here's what we'll do, man-made climate change. Now, that was the cleverest of all the decisions to make, was to simply call it climate change, which is the most unscientific phrase i've ever heard i can do i can measure global co- cooling i can gl- measure global warming but climate change what the what the hell does that mean now i am I, I told you i've been doing the louisiana economic outlook for 40 years so you know i'm an older guy and when people see you know forest fires or uh you know whatever happening they go oh my god the climate is changing no the climate has been changing ever since you know i was a kid it's, it's been changing it always changes it goes through swings, and and if you look at what's been happening to, since 1970, it all looks like it's on an upward track. If you look what's been happening since the 1930s, it's not all on an upward track. I mean, we had we had the melting of the glaciers uh, way back in the 30s. Uh, we were, we're, we're, this this is not new. This has happened before. We go through these cycles, but this is a two billion dollar industry now. It is a $2 billion industry. There's all kinds of government money coming in to support people who will help support this, you know, who, who, who find, do research to support these issues. And I just, honestly, I think it, I think if you actually look at what has happened to air quality, if you look at what is all the, you know, the, the actual measures of what happened to air quality, uh, to water quality, et cetera, in the United States. They have been dramatically improved, not dramatically worse. They have dramatically improved over time. Particles in the air dramatically improved over time, not gotten worse. So, I, I mean, I, I, I really, I, I, I'm a, I guess the, the official phrase is a denier, which is another clever word. Because that's associated with people who, you know, that's a word associated with people who deny the Holocaust, which I definitely do not do. But, but you, you it's, I, I just think this is much ado about nothing. But that's just me, you know. So I, as a scientist, I look at the actual numbers and I just, I, just, I just think this is not true. There's a whole book, a very, very thick book, that is the, uh, 
the non-governmental panel on climate change would be a very good thing for people to look at uh, because it is a it is a book that uh, very good scientists from places like Harvard and other very well-known schools are saying that, you know this is nonsense but the press the press has jumped on it and the press says this is real so by golly let's be real all right final question for you and then we'll make sure we let <laughs> let people know about uh how they can get in touch with you to come speak because i imagine you do that when you're not forecasting at least you used to i imagine you're still speaking Matter of fact, I'm leaving leaving tomorrow for Memphis. Oh, you're going to Memphis to do some speaking? What's going on in Memphis? I'm going to Memphis to give a speech to the Syngas Association. Okay, great, great. So here's here's a you know question again. This is you know not planned ahead of time for the listeners out there. It's just you know that seven eight years ago when when this thing kind of first started and and the Bakken was you know in the rock star phase and I was kind of traveling around to the different shale plays interviewing these CEOs. By the way, these same CEOs that you could find so easily 10 years ago, they're like a rare albino white elk sighting now. I mean, you can't find any of them now. But anyway, that's for a different day. But um, so, you know, they kept using the word paradigm shift. And, you know, these guys, they can't use words like that. They're not... They're, they're not exaggerators, you know. They, they can get sued if they say things, and they got shareholders listening and competition. So I did pay attention to that. So when I look at big data, when I look at how many people are retiring, you know, they say 70% of the industry is going to be retired by 2022. And so I look at the 1990s with low oil prices. So we really had two, three, four generations, depends on if you call XYZ generations, you know, of really not being hired in the energy industry. So you've got globalization, you got this eco cult, you've got renewables, retirees, you've got all this stuff going on. What's the energy industry going to look like in five years? Well, I mean, uh, gosh, like I said, this is the most second most difficult thing in the economy to forecast. Totally. Uh, by the way, did you notice I said the second most difficult, the most difficult thing in the economy to forecast, the most variable thing in the economy to forecast is the weather. And the idea that you can forecast what the weather is going to be like 20 years from now is absurd. Any more than I could forecast what the price of oil is going to be 30 years from now or 20 years from now. But going back to your question, I mean, I, I think uh, is what this industry does when they start running into labor shortages, like you're suggesting there, is they do two things. Uh, thing number one they do is they raise the wage rates. The way that you attract people uh, when you start to run into an issue uh, issue of shortages is you always raise wage rates first. That's the first thing you do to try to get people to come in. The second thing that you do is you start substituting capital for labor. You start figuring out ways to do things with the machines that people today do. So when I was working on the drilling rig when I was 18 years old, my first summer out of high school, uh, I had we had to manually put slips uh, in place on a rig. A slip is something that keeps the pipe from dropping all the way down to the bottom of the hole when you're pulling the pipe out to change the bit on the bottom. You had to manually put these these uh, these uh, slips in place. Took you know, two guys to put the slips in place. Well, now the guy pushes a button on the floor of the rig and the slips go into place. You don't need a man to do that. You don't need a, a man to uh, to put the tongs on to tighten the tighten the pipe into place. This is all done 
uh, with technology now. And so, you know, where you might have need six men on the floor uh, in the past, maybe you need two nowadays. So th- that's that's the way you handle this. And, and this industry of all industries is one of the most clever. It's one of the most adaptable industries in the country when it comes to dealing with shortages or with low oil prices. They are really smart, clever capitalists. There's a lot of money at stake, and when there is, their creative juices get to working, and they start solving the problem. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the time today. Jason, it's always a treat. Thank you.